My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Well, I'm delighted to be joined for this edition of Bridges to the Future by Yasha Monk, who has spoken at the RSA, I think about three years ago, Yasha, when you published your book. I have no sense of time anymore, but that sounds about right. Yeah. Yasha's yeah, a writer, commentator, very, very prominent in some you know, big debates roiling around at the moment around kind of liberalism and anti-racism. And that book identified some of the kind of threats to liberal democracy. And I'm sure we're going to be discussing that more as we go on. But Yasha, before we start and get into that conversation, I'm going to ask you the question we ask everybody on this podcast. So Yasha Monk, what is your big idea for the post-COVID world? Well, you know, my hope is that people will realize that good governance and expertise actually matter. As you said in the introduction, I've been writing about the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy for a good few years. And those of us who warned about the dangers that saying we're fed up with experts, we don't want to listen to what scientists have to say. Those of us who've been warning about those things, I think sometimes have fallen on deaf ears in part because life for ordinary people hasn't become that much worse. I think in the United States, where I am now, it would have been perfectly appropriate for most Americans to say in January or February, you know, for all of the shouting about Donald Trump, in the end, it hasn't really affected my own life all of that much. Well, I think, you know, half a year later, in the middle of this pandemic, which many countries have failed to confront sensibly, and especially here in the United States, we've failed to confront sensibly, we're seeing how big a price people in their ordinary life have to pay when the government is incompetent, when it's not listening to the experts, when there aren't independent institutions that take decisions about people's health in a way that's not politically motivated. So I know that's a big idea, but it's a big hope that people will start valuing those institutions more than they did in the past. Yeah. And I guess, you know, speaking from the perspective of America, it's very hard to see past the November election as this kind of critical turning point for the country. But Going back to your book, The People Versus Democracy, remind us of the kind of key points that you make there about what you see as being the threats to liberal democracy. Because my sense is, recalling that argument, that none of those things have become less problematic in the last two or three years. No, unfortunately not. I mean, the book really is about the rise of populism, which we've been talking so much about for the last few years that it feels like we've been talking about it forever. But it really was one of the first sort of books that reached a big audience that tried to explain the nature of populism and why it's so dangerous. And at that time, you know, Donald Trump had just become president of the United States, but it was still a relatively different phenomenon. Since then, we have had the consolidation of authoritarian populists in power in countries like Turkey and Hungary. We have seen them very rapidly attack democratic institutions in places from uh, Poland to India. And of course, we have uh, new countries in which populists are now in power, like Brazil or the Philippines. So at this point, 
most of the big democracies in the world are in fact ruled by these populists. And what's dangerous about them is not just that I disagree with them on this or that issue of public policy, that's perfectly fine. It is that they claim, as Evo Morales puts it in his Twitter handle, that Evo es Pueblo, uh, Evo is the people, the populist alone legitimately represents what people want and who the people are. And this means that anybody who disagrees with a government, whether it's an independent court that strikes down a government directive as exceeding its authority, whether it's the opposition that tries to oppose certain legislation, or whether it's a press that criticizes the government, they very quickly become portrayed as enemies of the people, as traitors, as illegitimate political forces. And that's part of what's so dangerous about this political movement, because it leads them bit by bit to a power grab in which they refuse to acknowledge as legitimate anything that could check their power. Now, I read the book at the time and in fact hosted you at the RSA. As I've said, I'm sitting in the middle of the English countryside and I came without a copy of the book. So my recollection is that you argued that amongst the factors that had contributed to the position we were in were, first of all, kind of policy failure in the sense of the genuine issues around inequality and exclusion. Secondly, what you described as kind of liberal undemocracy, I think, which was that the democratic, liberal democratic regimes that had been pushed out of the way by populism had often themselves not been terribly democratic. Power had been concentrated in various ways. So in a sense, the populists had some strengths behind their critique of that system. And then thirdly, I remember that social media was something that you also wanted to say had made a contribution to the kind of deterioration of public discourse. Have I remembered right? And are those still, do you think, the kind of key factors which are meaning populism is continuing to be in the ascendancy? Well, so first of all, I'm, I'm deeply offended that when the pandemic broke out and you apparently went to the countryside, you didn't take a copy of my book with you. I, I will never forgive you for that. <laughs> I only went to the countryside yesterday, Yasha. It's a very short trip. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I realized that this is a politically sensitive issue in Britain. I did not mean to imply that you had similarities to Dominic Cummings. No, um, yeah, I think, I think that's broadly right. One way to think about this is as a series of family resemblances, where when you look at a portrait of a family, you know, no two members of a family have all of the traits that they share exactly. And nor is there one trait that is shared by every member of a family in such a way that, you know, you say, okay, well, this defines that they're a family, but they still look similar to each other because enough of them share enough of these traits to create a feeling of resemblance. And I think the causes of populism are like that. You know, there isn't a single cause that's present in every case. It's not like you can give these three definitive causes and they're uh, sort of wholly explanatory. There's probably five or six different things that are going on, of which a few are particularly widespread and important. And the ones you enumerated are absolutely right. So it goes from the rise of social media, which makes it much easier for extreme movements to challenge our political systems. It includes economic considerations in many countries with stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens. It includes rapid social and cultural transformations and the way that they threaten some of the people who feel like they had a certain social status in society, and that status is now often for the best, being challenged. But that fear of loss of standing makes them quite resentful about cultural and demographic changes that are going on. And, and you take those different factors and a few others we could talk about if we had more time together, and that makes for a very, very dangerous cocktail. 
What I think is interesting is if you look around the world, because one of the things I thought was powerful in your book was you weren't afraid to critique liberal democracy and say that the way that, you know, for example, people like Blair or other leaders who had been in the ascendancy had generated power. And I know you used to work with Tony Blair, that there were problems with that model, that it was elitist, that gave too much voice to lobbying interests, for example, possibly too much power to kind of unaccountable global forces. What is interesting to me is if you look around the world, you can start to see new forms of liberal democracy, different forms of leadership, for example, more emotionally intelligent leadership. You know, Jacinda Ardern is often described in these terms. Also, kind of mayors of cities like Barcelona and Paris. It feels like a type of leadership that really does want to engage people, that does want to open up decision-making, that is more kind of humble about what people can do without that kind of engagement. So you've got this going on at the same time as populism is is happening. So do you see some signs that there is renewal within liberal democracy at the same time as the threats to it? Yeah. So, look, I think that there certainly is a new political style that's rising and much of that can be positive. You know, I think actually uh, people have different styles of emotional communication in different time periods. And it's not clear to me that it makes sense to describe the sort of wave of center-left governments in the 1990s as not having focused on that. I think at the time, people were struck by how loose Bill Clinton was as a public figure compared to sort of his predecessors playing the saxophone and so on, sort of uh, seeming a lot more approachable. And of course, people would have said the same about FDR, who had his famous fireside chats, which seemed like an incredibly intimate way of connecting with the president compared to the kind of distant uh, pedestal that you primarily accessed through the written word that people might have experienced before him. So absolutely, there's a shift. And as technology changes, as the sort of circumstance of politics change, the way in which you have to connect with voters is very different. But it's not clear to me that politicians 20 or 30 years ago were sort of obtuse to the need for that, or that they were less skilled at that. They simply did that in a different way at a different historical moment. So I want to come to America in November in a moment, but we're talking reasonably soon after the European Union reached a historic deal. It took them, you know, four days to get there, but I guess we all kind of knew they probably would in the end. The European Union gives us cause for hope, doesn't it? Both the kind of quality of leadership in some of those European countries, not all of them by any means, but some of them, but also simply the capacity of the European Union in the end, in its kind of quasi-democratic way to model through and to continue to advance the European project despite, you know, all the setbacks that have occurred. So do you see, as a champion of liberal democracy in a cold climate, do you see the European Union as a beacon of hope? Not necessarily. You know, I'm not a British citizen, but insofar as I had thoughts about it, I oppose Brexit. I think it's a bad idea for the United Kingdom, and I I still do. That shouldn't make us complacent about some of the ways in which the European Union is deeply imperfect. And when you think particularly about the EU and questions of liberal democracy, I think that it faces a very, very deep problem and challenge at this point, which is that at least two of its member states, and arguably more of them, are rapidly veering away from democracy. Hungary is no longer to be described as a liberal democracy under any reasonable description. Poland is very rapidly starting to echo and emulate Hungary. And especially if the government, which was re-elected last year, and the president, who was re-elected just a few weeks ago, make good on their quote-unquote promises to repolonize the media, which is to say to expropriate the current owners 
and ensure that the people who run private media organizations are allies of the government. We will no longer have free speech in that country and we will probably no longer have free and fair elections three years from today. Now, the European Union is not just meant to be a trade bloc, it's not just meant to be a regional organization standing up for the collective interest of its members, in which case the particular governance structures of its members wouldn't matter so much, perhaps. It does facilitate a real sharing of sovereignty. And at this point, this means that I, as a German citizen, I'm both a German and a US citizen, I, as a German citizen, am effectively sharing my sovereignty with a dictator in Budapest and an aspiring dictator in Warsaw. That is a challenge to the legitimacy of the European Union, which is deeper than most people have recognized, and which doesn't exactly make me think of the EU at this point as a shining beacon of hope for liberal democracy, even though I agree that the EU has taken certain steps that are sensible in the last few months in terms of sharing of responsibility, in terms of being able to confront a current crisis in a collective way, which I applaud. But I don't think it should make us forget about this fundamental structural problem the EU currently faces. But in a sense, pragmatically, to take on uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, a man who is very popular within his country, who is successful by most criteria in terms of the economy and a kind of overall development within that society, to take on a leader like that, I mean, in a sense, doesn't one have to choose one's enemies carefully? And that taking on Orban when he appears to be successful and is popular is in danger of giving populism a good name, isn't it? I mean, isn't it perhaps best to express disapproval, as the European Union does, but to hope that in the end he loses the plot himself? Or do you think that the European Union should be confronting and threatening, for example, to expel Hungary? I absolutely think it should. The European Union is a club of values, which involves the sharing of sovereignty. And it's, you know, whether or not it is strategic or whether or not there will be some pushback, you know, is a difficult question to judge. But the fundamental fact of the matter is that at this point, I, as a German citizen, have rules imposed upon me in part through the voice of a dictator sitting in Hungary. And I simply don't recognize that as legitimate under any circumstances. Now, the European Union has, in fact, followed your line for the last 10 years. They've kept thinking, oh, well, you know, Orban is not really going to go through with these fundamental attacks on democracy. In the end, he's going to be fine. In fact, he still remains a member of the European People's Party, of the sort of perfectly ordinary centre-right faction of political parties in the European Parliament, to which Angela Merkel too belongs, because of this attitude of wait and see and it'll be fine somehow. This is a country that independent observers like Freedom House no longer consider free countries. It is a country that is no longer considered a democracy, and yet we're supposed to share our sovereignty with them because it's perhaps impolitic to stand up to Viktor Orban, who is supposedly popular, which is difficult to tell, by the way, because it's very hard to get independent opinion polls or news about Hungary at this point. That strikes me as a compromise that I personally am not willing to make. Let's turn to America. Looking at it from UK, you would, I think, have a sympathy with a view in the Biden camp that... All he has to say to win the election in November is that he's not Donald Trump. But given the fact that you have recognised that the problems of liberal democracy lie in the way liberal Democrats in power have conducted themselves and not simply in 
the attacks of populists. What is the message that you would want to hear Joe Biden putting across before the election? What would you want to be seeing him do after the election so that it isn't simply, well, we've got this old bloke because Donald Trump was such an utter catastrophe, but there may be some sense that the world's largest democracy is renewing the democratic mission? Well, I think these are slightly separate questions. I think Joe Biden is running an incredibly effective campaign. You know, he's helped by the fact that Donald Trump is an utter disaster and that he's a disaster in ways that tragically during this pandemic are becoming very clear to people. They are seeing Europe opening back up for business, countries in Asia mastering this pandemic very well, whereas here the pandemic is raging in many states as severely as it ever has been in the last six months. They are seeing that there are effective test and trace regimes in most European countries. And yet in the United States, there's not even a serious effort to do so at the federal level, and many states haven't done so either. And so that, you know, obviously creates an opportunity for Joe Biden to run on a ticket of competence. And then Donald Trump is evidently trying to inflame racial tensions in the country as much as he can. And that creates an opening for Joe Biden to run on a ticket of decency and of humanity. And all of those things accurately describe him. It's always an advantage in politics when the claims you make about yourself are in fact true. So, you know, I've been very impressed with his social media presence, which has been incredibly straightforward. You know, it is saying things like, you know, we need somebody in the White House who wants to unite rather than to divide the country. And, you know, these posts have hundreds of thousands of likes because they speak to something deep that Americans are longing for in this really bitter political and not just political moment. Now, the question of what Joe Biden would have to do once he's in government to make sure that Americans start to trust the government again in a different way, that they're more optimistic about the future, is, of course, more challenging. I think he's actually put forward a pretty ambitious economic program of how America can get the country up and running again. I also think that we need some real reforms to state institutions, because for all of the ways in which populists are simply unwilling to tolerate independent institutions and experts. It's also become clear that many of those institutions do not function as well as they should. And I think the mistakes made by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the next few months are a particularly bitter case study of that. So we need economic renewal, but we also need renewal of state capacity. And also presumably attempts again to address some of the failings of American democratic culture, whether that's the role of money and lobbying, for example. I've always been interested in democracy, democratic institutions. I kind of believe that old maxim, which is a democracy is like a bicycle. If it's not going forward, it's liable to start to wobble. But yet, generally, progressives aren't that interested in that stuff. They're more interested in economic and, and social policy. Is it important that someone like Biden takes the health of the democratic system seriously and says it is an important part of the resilience of the nation? Yes. I mean, look, I think it's substantively incredibly important. And I talk a lot about both how unresponsive our political institutions are and how corrosive this is to trust in the institutions in, in my book and the People vs. Democracy. Now, do I think that this is foremost on the minds of most Americans at this point? Do I think that there's a you know popular clamor for political reform? You know, I think, unfortunately, that always tends to be a really specialized issue. And while people will happily tell you that they dislike the political institutions, they don't really tend to have very strong views about how those should be reformed, because that takes a lot of 
uh, knowledge of the working of the institutions. It takes a lot of attention to politics. And most people, understandably, only think about politics when an election approaches, um, when they have some direct interest at stake. So, you know, I think I'm skeptical that most Americans feel the most important thing that Biden should do is, you know, this specific reform. And if he doesn't do it, I'm going to be disappointed. But that doesn't make it less important to address those structural issues, which do drive a lot of the skepticism, a lot of the cynicism about our politics over time. Now, at the RSA, we've given some thought to the relationship between crisis and change. And looking historically, we argue, and it's fairly common sense, you might think, you're more likely to get change out of crisis when three conditions apply, when there's demand for change before the crisis and capacity for change before the crisis that during the crisis, that demand grows. And in certain ways, in responses to the crisis and innovations in the crisis, you see the future prefigured. And then as you emerge from crisis, critically, you have the political coalitions and the practical policy ideas ready to take advantage of people's openness to change. Now, one of the issues now for several years, and arguably one of the reasons why the global financial crisis didn't lead to a kind of progressive agenda, is that the liberal and left side of the kind of political spectrum has been divided. We've seen this in Britain with um, Corbyn, and we've seen this with Sanders and Clinton and Sanders and Biden. And now you're involved very much in a new element of this, although it's been rumbling on for some time, which is around the kind of anti-racist critique of liberalism or the liberal discourse. How deep do you see the fissures now between liberal progressivism and more radical models? Uh, well, you know, I think there is a fissure. But in the end, what's going on, I think, is that a lot of very, very bad ideas are spreading unchecked because people don't quite have a language to illuminate them. But as soon as people actually take a look at them, they turn out to have a very, very small constituency and nobody actually uh, wants to live in the world they propose. Now, I'm not quite comfortable with the way that you frame this as a fight between liberalism and anti-racism. I think that liberal uh, political principles, which involve the idea that everybody should have the same rights and opportunities irrespective of who they are, are deeply anti-racist. And I consider myself to be as anti-racist as anybody else who thinks about these issues. I'm as deeply committed to fighting racism and to resisting racism as anybody else. The problem is that there are certain people like Robin DiAngelo who want to own that term and define that term in very strange ways. Now, according to this book called White Fragility, which was the number one bestseller in the United States for the last month or so, you know, the way to overcome racism is, first of all, for all whites to recognize that the most important thing about them is the fact that they are white, that they should take on this very strong collective racial identity. Now, her hope is that this is the first step towards white people then feeling bad about themselves and, you know, changing their behavior. My fear is that if you try to instill this identity in people, if, for example, you take white children apart at the age of eight or nine, as many private schools in the United States now do, and you put them in a room, say, you all have something big in common, a lot of them will start to develop a form of racial pride. And so the project of Robin DiAngelo is not actually so far removed from the project of certain white supremacists, especially when you then add a statement, for example, that values like perfectionism or worship of the written word 
are somehow characteristic of white people. Well, there's a version of that that people on the extreme right might say, which is just straightforwardly a racist attack on black people claiming that they are somehow less intellectually capable or curious. So what I'm seeing right now is that a few people have managed to capture the zeitgeist by claiming to stand for noble ideals, when what they're actually peddling is a very dangerous form of racialism, which, uh, you know, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying that this is racist because it discriminates against whites. It's not the old charge of reverse racism. It is racist because it claims that black people are less intellectual than white people. It is racist because it makes straightforwardly denigrating statements about black people um, that somehow dressed up in progressive language. Now, I think that as this book has actually started to get more attention, a lot of people recommended it without reading it, as it's actually getting more attention, as people are starting to read it, starting to process what that world of ideas is, there's a very, very broad majority of people who rightly reject it. But doesn't the debate go wider than this, Yasha, in the sense that there's a singer-songwriter in the UK called Billy Bragg, who wrote a piece in The Guardian, I think, in which he criticised George Orwell, or in a sense criticised the kind of idea of George Orwell as an icon in terms of the fact that he said that the, the idolising of free speech was problematic. He says in the article, I hope I'm not misquoting him, but he says accountability is more important than free speech. And in a sense, it seems to be the wider debate here is that on the one hand, the reality for disadvantaged people and for black people within societies that claim to be liberal was so far away from the liberal ideals that those countries espouse that liberalism has been a hoax. And secondly, that in a sense, in the fight to achieve real equality, if liberal principles need to be set aside, so be it, because, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs to an extent. And if we want radical change, then maybe we do need to say to people, there are certain opinions, even if they're not explicitly racist opinions, there are certain opinions which people who are fighting racism find unpleasant or undermining, and it is reasonable to want to exclude those voices, for example, our universities. That's the wider debate that I think you're involved in, isn't it? Well, then I think the way you put it is so absurd that it's uh, actually a nice illustration of what's wrong with that discourse. It is certainly true that you need to break X to make an omelette. It is also true, as Judith Sklar pointed out, that you can break an awful lot of X without ever succeeding in or intending to make an omelette. And by the way, I take it that the metaphor here is that the eggs are human beings. So I don't know whether we should be starting to break human beings in order to make an omelette that sounds a, a little bit more violent to me. So, you know, the first point is that I think the sort of rather laissez-faire attitude towards uh, inflicting injustice on some in order to supposedly reach justice for others has been tried many times in our history, and it has usually gone uh, very badly wrong. Now, there's another important point here, which is that, uh, you know, yes, absolutely, we have never had a society that has realized liberal values nearly to the extent that it should. And one of my hopes is to realize them much more fully going forward. Um, there are deep inequalities and deep injustices in the United States today and certainly in the United Kingdom today and virtually every country today. And we should all be fighting to remedy those injustices. But there's two important things we should say here. The first is that the view according to which in the United States we have made no progress on those counts at all over the last 50 years, and that only throwing out the principles that have allowed us to make that progress is going to allow us to make further progress in the next 50 years is just a complete misdescription of reality. Nobody who has seriously studied the history of this country can claim 
that we do not have more equality and that we're not living up to these values better today than we did in the 1950s or 1960s. And that makes me much more optimistic that we can, in fact, make further progress towards those ideals without throwing out these values. The second is to look at societies that have tried to operate without the basis of those liberal values. They inevitably have turned out to be more unequal, more racist, more unjust than societies that have not fully, not completely, but to some extent instantiated those liberal ideals. Um, So nothing in my understanding of history and nothing in my understanding of different countries today gives me any reason to believe that these claims that throwing out liberal principles will somehow lead to justice or equality have any realistic basis. Well, Yasha, that's a very powerful way to end our conversation. As I said, your book may be three years old, but it's still as relevant today as it was when you published it, Democracy Versus the People. And if you're interested in Yasha's ideas, he has a very well-followed a Twitter account and website. And Yasha, I hope one day we will... And, and, may, and may I rudely plug one more thing? Of course. So, you know, I think it really is an important moment for us to stand up to the values of a free society, precisely because we care about making progress towards real justice and equality. And I don't think there's many spaces in which people who coherently argue for those ideals are assembling at the moment. So that's why I started a few weeks ago a publication and a community called Persuasion, which is explicitly devoted to that fight and to those ideals. About 25,000 people sign up in a matter of a couple of weeks. So it's an incredibly exciting moment. And I invite you to come join us at www.persuasion.community. Thank you very much for that, Yasha. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.